Hey, what's going on, guys? We have an awesome guest today. I had such a great time talking with her, and it was so interesting hearing her explain digestion, the gut microbiome, and really just how what we're consuming, our food, it plays such a huge role in not only our physical health, but our mental health. And I mean, the effects of what we put into our body, it's crazy. It really is crazy. And hearing her talk about it with, you know, the knowledge and the background that she has, it was, it was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. I think I said it in the podcast. I mean, for something that we all do, which is eat food, how much of us really understand just how vital that role is and how so much of what we feel really is just tied to what we put into our body. It was crazy. At least for me, I had no idea. And like I said, I really enjoyed talking with her. I'm so grateful that she, you know, took the time and was able to come on and sit down and talk with someone like me who has no idea about 90% of that stuff. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. And I think conversations like this are important. And cheat days are great. And listen, I love pizza. I love pasta. I am no stranger to a cheat day. I think everything is just moderation. And I think, you know, understanding the role that our food plays in our lives is that is important. And so again, super thankful that she came on. So please give it up for Amanda Malachewski. It's like your little man cave. It is. Okay. It, that's what I'm kind of turning it into. Slash podcast <laughs> studio. It's... It's more so like my space, I yeah. think. Like, this is the place that I can go to and be like, oh, like, this is my my place. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't know. Your room's kind of like that, too. Yeah. But... You don't want to, like, work in your room, really. Yeah. It's, like, for sleeping. And you get distracted. At yeah. least I do. When I'm in my room, it's like I never get anything yeah. important done. Yeah. Ever. It's just... I try... I sit down at my computer and, then like, 30 minutes later, I'm like, oh, I achieved nothing. And now I'm sitting <laughs> on my bed. So it's like, okay, maybe I do need to go somewhere. That's why it was nice to get this out of because i did it in my parents like living room area on the ping pong table right right and to get it out of there in here where it's a little more like okay we're going somewhere to do it yeah it just added a cool element i guess nice but nice. you i'm so excited to sit here and talk <laughs> with you do you want to kind of introduce yourself and say what it is that you do sure are we recording already? yeah oh okay. yeah we're rolling we're live we're going <laughs> all right um well yeah maybe just tell me what you'd like to hear about specifically um well you're a nutritionist so I guess starting there, I really found you, we kind of talked about it a little bit. I was interested in the carnivore diet and I've been Googling nutritionists and I came across you and was like, oh, I have to get her on to talk about nutrition in general, okay. but the carnivore diet. And it's, I mean, there are all these fad diets going around, obviously, but that one I think interests me because I've heard anecdotal evidence of people going on it that have autoimmune issues, mm -hmm. deficiencies, whatever, and it helps them, which I is weird because it doesn't seem like it would where you're eliminating so much from your diet. Right. And I don't know. I know you made a little YouTube video on that. I watched that. Um, what are your thoughts as someone who does, is a nutritionist, has experience and isn't just 
pulling things off the internet like I am. <laughs> right. Well, just to clarify, I'm actually not a nutritionist. I'm a functional nutrition health coach. So okay. nutritionist is a little bit more of a, um, a it's a licensed, you know, uh, it's a specific credential. That, mm-hmm. So I just want to be clear that I'm not a nutritionist, but I am probably just as qualified as a nutritionist with all the study that I've done. Um, and um, I got into health coaching because of my own health issues, which a lot of people do. Um, I started having health problems in my mid-30s, um, varying degrees between 30 and 35, and then around 35 when I weaned my uh, youngest son. All of a sudden, I had a major bunch of health problems, you know, fatigue and digestive stuff. And so I started trying to pursue, a, you know, a solution. I was just like, what's going on? And then, like many of us, you fall down the Google rabbit hole and you learn about all these different things. And then I you know, started watching summits and watching videos and reading blogs and learning about the ways that food can make us sick. And I remember feeling like, why isn't anyone talking about this? And why, why hasn't my doctor heard about this? Because I did the whole exploration with doctors and they found nothing wrong with me, even though I was really sick. So I went back to school. <laughs> this is what happened as I went back to school. I already had a background in health um, from massage therapy and um, was looking for a new career path after my uh, my kids were st- both in school. So um, so then coming back around to your question about <laughs> what's my thoughts, what are my thoughts about the carnivore diet specifically, right? That was your question? Yeah. Well, all of that. No, that was good to know. I didn't know the background. Yeah. Um, well, so – carnivore, I consider the carnivore diet kind of like a a diet of last resort, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, at least for people who are sick and looking for a therapeutic diet. Um, It's, it's like you, like you touched on, it's a very extreme diet where you're removing all plant foods and you're really just left with uh, fats and uh, animal proteins and maybe like coffee, like a couple of random other items. And I mean, for you're right, for some people who are very sick, especially with autoimmune diseases or certain kinds of health issues, they do find um, some relief. So I mean, there is some interesting anecdotal evidence. There's even a little bit of clinical research on that diet, not a ton, but there is some. Um, but you know, my jam is digestive challenges. That's what I focus on with my clients. And I, I generally find that um, in all but the most extreme of choices and, and situations, the carnivore is kind of like a, a diet of last resort. It does seem like it's maybe more useful for people with maybe your constitution who are, you know, just looking to optimize health and kind of go to the extreme ketogenic uh, side of the spectrum, right, where you're retraining your body to burn ketones rather than carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, people who are kind of into fitness and bodybuilding and, um, you know, dealing with insulin resistance and that kind of stuff, like the keto diet's a great option and it can really help people lose weight and or maintain muscle mass and, you know, be really athletic. Um, But in the, in the gut realm, I don't, you know, I see I see people get on the uh, carnivore diet, but then that stops working for them, too. And then they can't get off of it. You know, they can't figure out what to eat. So I have seen several situations where people end up not able to eat 
anything, the meat no longer is working for them either. And then they're really in a pickle. So <laughs> is it hard trying to adjust back? Cause that, I mean, that must mess with your microbiome and your gut because everything's gone except for those things. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the main reason why it has, it can have negative side effects is because uh, yeah, when you like anytime you change your diet, you're changing your gut microbiome. It's shifting the balance of the various bacteria. And it, you can think of your gut sort of like uh, it's like an ecosystem and it has lots of different players in it and lots of different types of organisms. And, you know, they kind of hang out in an equilibrium, but then sort of like clear cutting a forest. Like if you go in and um, radically change your diet, you're going to shift the balance of the organisms in there. And then you're going to select for the organisms that, you know, help you digest what you're eating. <laughs> and then, um, and then you're, then, then you're no longer. Then you no longer have the organisms that help you digest other kinds of foods. So if you're going all the way to the extreme of carnivore, um, you know, we our bodies require certain uh, beneficial bacteria to help break down carbohydrates and fibers, plant fibers, and um, and even in some cases fats. And so when you go all the way carnivore, those organisms pretty much die off, especially the longer you're on it. And so then when you try and get back to eating. A regular diet that includes plant foods, you're going to feel really horrible unless you can rehab that gut microbiome. But rehabbing it is kind of difficult, just like, you know, you can't expect to replace a clear cut with just just by planting trees. Like, mm -hmm. You can plant those trees, but it's going to be like several generations before that forest kind of looks like an intact ecosystem with, you know, different kinds of trees and, and shrubs and plants at different levels, right? And the soil is recovered. So it's sort of, um, I think we have to be a lot more careful about making drastic changes than a lot of us have been led to believe in the last decade. You know, where people Well, it's crazy. I mean, for something that everybody does, which we all eat food, how many of us actually know about nutrition? I mean, I know I don't, and I eat all the time, you know, but I mean, it's it's crazy. You think that people would be more well-versed in something that consumes so much of their time, like eating food does, and knowing what goes into their body and trying to optimize that to whatever degree they want to take it. Yeah. And you would think that people in healthcare would be more on board. And I think more and more they are. But I just about once a week or every couple of weeks, I hear from someone whose doctor has said to them, nutrition has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter. It's crazy. And I, I literally can't believe it when... I hear people tell me that, like gastroenterologists, especially, you know, gut doctors who tell their patients, food has nothing to do with it. You can eat whatever you want. That's insane. Yeah. I had a doctor or my dad, his doctor actually told him not to take any multivitamins or any like supplement vitamin D or anything. She said, no, you don't, you don't need it. You're fine. Which, especially for people up here in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, vitamin D is incredibly important. Multivitamins in general are incredibly important and fish oil and all of that, but vitamin D especially. And no, nope. doctor was like, no, you don't. You're fine. You're, <laughs> you're, you're going to get that from your diet. And I'm over here thinking, I know what he eats. He's not going to get it from his diet. <laughs> right? Even if he ate, you know, incredibly clean, the odds of him getting all the nutrients needed is so low. Yeah, I know. To get enough vitamin D from the diet, you need to eat a lot of fatty fish and you Which know how many eggs people are actually and doing liver that? you know yeah. you have to eat a ton of that kind of stuff and be or you can spend 
20 minutes in the sun with 70% of your body exposed at midday, which, you know, in Eureka is impossible because... Yeah, it's <laughs> summer right now and it's, it's cloudy out. It's cloudy out. Yeah. We can't even do that. So, um, yeah, it's I most of the people that I work with that, that have their vitamin D tested, if they haven't been supplementing, they're deficient. And, um, you know, also the population of people I work with are, you know, they tend to be people with kind of chronic health conditions of various kinds. And... Um, vitamin D tends to be deficient in those people. It's a little bit unclear whether it's a chicken or the egg situation, which one came first, we don't mm -hmm. know, but, but, you know, we can supplement and bring that level back up pretty easily and for, with good benefit. About, yeah. You need that. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you say, so people that go on carnivore, they can kind of hit a plateau with it. Mm -hmm. Is that, cause I did keto. I only did it for a month. I don't know if I, I probably should have done it for like three just to really test it out. But I noticed obviously the first two weeks were, were pretty rough because mm -hmm. your body's adjusting. Mm -hmm. And then I had like a week in there where I felt pretty good and I was weightlifting and running and doing a lot of cardio and I felt pretty good. And then after that, it almost felt like I hit this wall mm -hmm. where I was like stuck in third gear and I couldn't get to fourth. I knew it was there, but I couldn't tap into it. But my energy was sustained. Uh -huh. Like I wouldn't be tired throughout the day. My The balance of my energy felt way more consistent yeah. than when I ate carbs. Mm -hmm. But I could never tap into that extra gear that I knew was there when I'd eat carbs. Mm -hmm. Like I could, if I was having a heavy lift day or running for a lot longer, like I felt like I could tap into that. And I just couldn't do that on keto. Right. Were you testing your body to see that you were in keto ketosis? I wasn't. I didn't do okay. any of the ketone tests. Yeah. Which probably, I mean, if I was going to document it, that probably would have helped. Right. Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think... I, you know, I don't work really specifically with the keto diet anymore. I, I was on the keto diet for a year and a half or two years or something. And it turned out that it really wasn't the right thing for me. The fat content was really hard on my digestive system. Mm -hmm. So this is why I have this caveat for a lot of people that we have to be conscientious about the pitfalls of these diets and be careful what we ask our body to do because it can uh, have a detrimental effect if we're not using them appropriately. But anyway, I was on the diet for some time and my uh, intention with it was to try and lose some weight when I first started with it. And I did. I lost, you know, 12 or 15 pounds or something when I over, you know, eight or nine months. Um, so, you know, you start keto and you start to lean down. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched the Naked and Afraid series on mm -hmm. TV. It's this television show where they send people out to the wilderness with nothing and they have to figure out how to eat. And they often end up fasting for extended periods of time. They all lose body weight and body mass. Um <clears throat> Anyways, it's kind of like that, you know, your your body starts digesting any fat in your body. Um, but then once all that's gone, it can start actually digesting your, your muscle tissue and you can start to lose muscle mass as well. And so once you've gotten to your kind of plateau, you do have to kind of add some carbs back in to your threshold and it varies what you need um, based largely on activity level. So if you're someone who's doing a lot of exercise or weightlifting, you're going to need more carbs than somebody who's way more sedentary. And so the reason I asked about you, whether you were testing your ketones, like I think the general idea is you, you know, you get to that sort of plateau and then you can start adding carbs back in in limited quantities and, you know, where you can, like, how much can I eat and still maintain the ketosis? Um, and, and then, you know, still provide for my needs so that I, you know, have, have the, the sort of cellular energy that I need to be awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. so you can, you can balance it out a little bit. Cause I was going pretty much no carbs. I'd maybe have, mm -hmm. yeah, pretty much, pretty much no carbs. Yep. 
Yeah, it was mainly just meat, cheeses. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I really did any carbs. Yeah. Because I thought that was, you hear like 50 grams or something is like the cutoff for the day or whatever they have. <laughs> right. On, you know, um, yeah, I don't think I did any carbs. Yeah, and that's like a super low carb amount. And, you know, for an average person, you know, even somewhere between 50 and 100 is still pretty low carb. And, um, and I mean, if you can't maintain ketosis, that's a whole nother, you know, you have to sort of figure out how to finesse that. But, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in in most cases, I think there, there's like the initial phase and then you kind of have to dial in like what feels best and what's the, the right thing and how much carb do I need to add in? You know, especially when people are doing endurance exercise or, you know weightlifting, running, um, swimming, or, you know, if they're really physically active, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. You feel completely different. Although I've heard of people that do, you know, keto for like endurance sports and are are okay. But I even think, I think they supplement with carbs. Like I knew kids that played soccer that would do it. And then like the day of, or the day before they'd have like pasta or some rice or something just to add that element Mm -hmm. back in. Yeah. And I actually, uh, several months ago, eight, nine months ago, uh, I was listening to a podcast from Dr. Ruscio. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Mm -mm. I used to work for him on his content team and he was, uh, being, he was interviewing this kind of famous weightlifter. I'm sorry. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. We could look, look it up later. So you could put it in your show notes or something. Um, and I was just fascinated because he's generally a very low carb keto, um, ketogenic diet kind of weightlifter and he's like this super bulky weightlifter guy oh, whoa. but he talked a lot about optimizing the timing of carbs with your workouts and like how he does it and i was surprised how how he uses carbs um as part of his routine even you know even though he's largely in ketosis but you know he does do some carb loading and i was kind of like oh that was sort of the revelation for me I was like oh it's not all or nothing. Yeah, which <clears throat> is what it seems like when you talk to people that do it. They're like, "Oh no, you gotta, you gotta cut it all out." Right. Exactly. I think what interests me about the carnivore diet is just, I mean, I kind of want to see how my body would handle it in a way, but I also like the idea of eliminating it down to just one component, which in this case would be meat, mm-hmm. and then adding things back in to see how my body adapts. Because I would, you know, living in. America or living wherever you are, like I eat junk food. You know, mm-hmm. I have, I'll have some cookies or some pasta or some things in there, and not that I view that as like, oh, you should never eat, you should never indulge. I think you should if you want to, mm-hmm. and it's all in moderation. But just seeing how my body would handle, like what it actually can optimize, and mm-hmm. what I need to eat to really get it spinning on all cylinders or firing on all cylinders right well and yeah the concept you're kind of touching on there is is basically an elimination diet yeah right and and i think um you know like again it's not really my go-to elimination diet it's it's it eliminates everything and i find that you know the sort of top three problem foods that i often talk about are you know gluten dairy and sugar sugar including alcohol as well um you know, and then, you know, generally processed foods, that's like a huge one, right? Yeah. So if you can like move into like a real food diet and remove the, t- you know, use one of the sort of more broad keto- uh, um, elimination diets that's a little more general, like something like the Whole30, which is kind of, it's it's a low carb, um, gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free 
grain-free, legume-free. It's like it's, it's removing all the the you know things that often inflame things for people, um, and then you carefully reintroduce things. It is a really wonderful opportunity to clear that what it, we call it clearing the muddy waters, and then inviting the foods back in one by one. So then you can get a clear reading of like, oh yeah, beans really don't do it for me. You know, like every time I eat beans, I have gas or every time I eat dairy, I have a stomach ache or every time I eat gluten, my joints hurt. You know, and you can, once you do that clearing, that initial clearing of the muddy waters, you can really clearly see the, the fallout when you uh, add that food back in. So that is a really valuable tool for, for health. And that's, you know, kind of one of the major things that I help people with is that process. Um, and I, you know, left to our own devices, we tend to just be like, it's all or nothing. And we yeah. get on that elimination thing and then people just keep going with it. But we end up with nutritional deficiencies or we end up painted into a corner where we can't get out of it or we can't go out with our friends anymore. Or we can't eat with our families <laughs> or whatnot. So um, I think it's a it's a wonderful tool, and we have to use it carefully and conscientiously. Yeah, it's easy when you when you go into these diets to just be consumed by them. Yeah. Like if you go vegan or if you go carnivore or keto, like it just yeah. becomes all consuming, and then you're like, oh, this is my life now. Like this is this is it. This is who I am. I'm a carnivore. I'm a vegan. Yeah. And then, especially if you start seeing he health ailments and it, you're getting worse. People don't want to attribute that to the diet. They're like, no, I'm eating, you know, all I'm doing is plant-based. So like, I'm, I'm fine. It's got to be something else. They don't yeah. want to acknowledge, oh, well, your body needs these mm -hmm. other nutrients that you're not really getting. Totally. It's the, yeah. So ketogenic uh, carnivore. Yeah. I see people start to get really anxious. Um, a lot of gut stuff with the high fat, high protein stuff. Um Sometimes, I, I mean, I know there's sort of debate about the impact on the cardiovascular system and the lipid profile, like the cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL, cholesterol. But I have this client who has been on the carnivore diet for maybe six, eight months now, and their cholesterol's like sky high, not just like a little high, but like really, really high. Um, you know, there's like all these things in his blood work that I'm like, this doesn't look good, you know? And then on the flip side with the veganism, same thing, you know, people who are just not willing to eat any animal products. And I mean, you know, there's good reasons for people to do that. And it's like, if people feel like they have to do that for like a moral or ethical reason, that's fine. Um, but I do often see a lot of problems there too with, um, you know, deficiencies of particular vitamins a lot of fatigue and, and like longer term, it can kind of translate to like thyroid problems and, um, you know, feeling cold and uh, just lacking energy. And so there's there's all these pieces to it. And yeah, some people, thankfully, some people are willing to say, well, if my body really needs it, I'm willing to invite some animal products back into my diet to round things out and give my body what it needs. But we can get very dogmatic about things. Absolutely. And it can cause problems. That so. thyroid deficiency is a pretty common issue, right? It is a common issue, and it's not always related to diet. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of underlying uh, factors for that, and it's one of the most common diagnoses in America. It's the uh, synthetic thyroid medication is the most commonly prescribed medication in America. So, oh wow, you know, it's it's a really common thing, and there's lots of different 
reasons why that can happen. But um, but yeah, I do see that commonly with people who are both vegan or carnivore, <laughs> actually, like um, just, you know, the body generally is designed to eat a wider variety. Like we're omnivores evolutionarily. We're, we're designed to eat lots of different things to gather lots of types of nutrients. And yeah, it's weird when you talk to somebody that doesn't believe that. And they swing back into that yeah. one-sided camp, and they're like, "No, we're herbivores. We're that's how we are." It's like the meat industry has somehow convinced people that, "Oh, we should be eating meat, but we don't really need to. Like our bodies aren't adjusted to that." Or vice versa with the carnivore. I've right. heard that before, and it's like, "What? Where are we? Where are we going with this?" Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I would say, I mean, nobody really knows, right? But I would say that probably. You know, we ate everything, but it was more of a punctuated equilibrium situation. Like when there was abundant meat, we ate meat. And then in times when we didn't have meat proteins stored up or saved or we didn't find game, then we ate plants. And, you know, our bodies adapted and we were able to do that. And sometimes we had both. And so we ate both. I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> I think we're certainly designed for all of it. And, um, yeah, I don't I don't buy that. We're, we're only designed to eat one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> Personally. It paints you back into that box of this is the camp you have to stay in. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I would say, too, that there are exceptions to that. So, I mean, I think there are people that can tolerate an only animal protein diet. And there are people that can tolerate only plants. And I don't, there's this dietary theory called the um, – oh – Maybe I won't be able to remember the the type. Um, it it's like oh the metabolic typing diet is what it's called. It's never really been scientifically validated, but the idea was you know you took this quiz and it sort of placed you in, on this spectrum of you know somewhere between all the way carnivore and all the way plant based. And um, you know if you eat right for your metabolic type, it's kind of like similar to the idea of the blood typing diet, which mm -hmm. you've probably heard of, right? Yeah, like, that you can optimize your diet this way and that people who have done this feel amazing and you know i it was the person who designed it was a friend of one of my um original mentors in the nutrition space and so like i took the quiz i got the diet i tried the diet i mean it didn't really help me so i don't i mean i'm just one person but i don't really see a ton of scientific validation of this theory i think i mean i think in theory it's right but you know can you can you get people to the right box by having them take a quiz i don't know i mean i think it's more valuable to allow our bodies just to give you feedback and say okay i feel good eating this i don't feel good eating that and to navigate it that way I, um yeah <laughs> yeah i've heard about the blood work one i just wasn't sure if that carried any weight you know and that's it's with like where your ancestors would have been you yeah. know however many years ago and what they evolved to eat in that area correct that is kind of the idea and you know i've i mean i've talked to people all across the spectrum you know who's some people who say yeah the meta you know the blood typing diet was you know i i did that and that was really helpful and then i've had other people who did i tried that but it didn't really do anything for me so you know i think the people who a lot of those things work for it's kind of, they kind of just get lucky yeah it, you know it just happens to work for them and then but when, if that doesn't work for you, where you left, you have to figure out what else to do. <laughs> How do you feel about like fasting and intermittent fasting? I think it works great for some people mm -hmm. and it doesn't work at all for others. Um, like I can't fast very long without feeling pretty bad. 
I don't have a ton of meat on my bones, but I find, you know, people who have a little bit more meat on it, it seems like it generally works better for men than women on the whole, but there are some women who can do it well. Um, so, I mean, I, I've seen that technique really help people who are struggling with um, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease. It can just kind of help them, you know, minimize their calories, get more into the ketosis zone. I have a client right now that has been doing intermittent fasting. You know, they eat a dinner at 6 p.m. They fast all night and eat their breakfast at like 10 or 11 in the morning and they eat two meals, you know, the sort of late morning meal and then like a regular dinner, you know, and they're aiming for ketosis and they're losing weight and their, their goal is to lose weight. So, you know, it just really varies how mm -hmm. it affects people, but in the right situation, I think it's a wonderful tool because it really does help resensitize your cells to insulin and allow blood sugar to get in there. If you're having trouble with that, or if you're trying to lose weight, it can be really good. Um, I did it for a while and I don't, I felt really good doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's just because when you do something like that, I found myself eating cleaner just in general mm -hmm. while doing that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's just, oh, you're eating cleaner and <laughs> you just happen to be fasting at the same time, you know? Yeah. Um, but I noticed, especially cognitively, I felt really good. Mm -hmm. And then I hit that first meal and, you know, for like an hour, my body would readjust like, okay, now we have food in the system mm -hmm. and then I'd be back. But mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it and I really liked the you just it's a weird feeling and it takes a while for your body to adjust to where you're not hungry yeah. but it's kind of cool also where it's like you know oh i'm not really hungry like i just want to eat but mm -hmm. like i don't actually need to eat and having that right. control over your body and recognizing okay am i hungry or am i bored right. and just needing food yeah or i want something to yeah, chew just, on. <laughs> yeah just because i'm bored like yeah. i think a lot of people just snack subconsciously and they're like oh i've eaten all of all of these all this candy and it's like i really wasn't hungry i was just bored <laughs> which happens but yeah i liked i liked fasting i need to give it another shot just to see you know was it the fasting or was it the clean food right right yeah i mean it, it does have benefits for mental clarity as well and you know sleep and energy and actually uh, another benefit of it for the digestive system just from the gut perspective that i'm so well versed in is uh you know, the longer we fast between meals, it really just gives what's called the migrating motor complex. It's like that uh, sort of peristalsis, that peristaltic wave of movement through the gut. Um, the longer you fast, the more that that normal action sets up and it helps move things through the digestive system faster, more easier and, you know, prevents stagnation of various kinds, which, which can event, eventually lead to infections of, of various kinds and cause all kinds of problems. So, Okay. Yeah. So it's that you're giving your body a little more time. Giving your body a little more time. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, for those that are like me that really don't understand micro gut biome, it's kind of become like pop culture now <laughs> to bring it up because yeah. everybody's talking about it, but I still don't really understand how it's all, I've heard people say, oh, it'll, it affects your mental health. Oh, it affects, you know, how much, like you said, how much energy ha you have, whether you're lethargic, whether you're cognitively aware. And I like trying to put it all together in my head, but I haven't like hit anything concrete. I know it's important. And I know that your food and everything that you're eating plays an effect in it. But can you give me like the rundown of, okay, this is what it, what's really happening. Right. Well, so 
I know it's kind of like a it, big topic. It's a big to topic, but that's great. <laughs> yeah. So, so we all have bacteria and viruses and yeasts and even in some cases parasites that are sort of endemic to our system. And, you know, they, like I said, they're kind of, they have kind of like an equilibrium, like an ecology. It's sort of like a cultivated garden or a, or a forest. You can imagine it's sort of like a forest ecosystem that has lots of interrelationships and everybody's kind of doing their thing. And then um, they, they play a really important role in our immune system, for one, um, and also certain types of bacteria help produce certain types of vitamins and nutrients that our body needs. So, you know, like we lack particular types of bacteria, we may be compromised in our ability to produce vitamin A, for example, or vitamin E or like, you know, certain nutrients. Um, so, you know, by way of their fermentation that they do with using plant fibers, basically, they can produce things that we need. Um, most of them are like most of them live in the large intestine. They're uh, the small intestine is a little higher up. You know, that's the area between, you know, the outflow of your stomach and then all the way to your large intestine. And the small intestine is not supposed to have a lot of bacteria, um, but it sometimes ends up with bacteria. I don't know if you've heard of um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm -mm. Uh, that's sort of a, a gut condition that can really mess people up. Um, so yeah, the, the bacteria basically, you know, they, they help us manufacture needed nutrients. They help maintain our gut barrier function. They are immune players and, um, and they can, you know, they can be helpers or if we have the wrong kind, they can be triggering inflammation and irritating the gut and creating, um, you know, allergies or allergic type reactions. Um, their byproducts, if we have bad bacteria, can cause a lot of symptoms <laughs> and, and troubles. Like, you know, just like any organisms, they make waste products just like we do. And their waste products can be um, inflammatory both for the gut and once they get into the bloodstream, they can also cause problems there. So they just play a lot of really important roles in our immune system and digestion and our ability to absorb nutrients and break things down the right way. So And so what you're eating feeds various types of, of that bacteria. That is correct. Yeah. So on the one hand, yes. And we sometimes also eat fermented foods that provide, uh, you know, augmentation of that, of those populations. It's what's interesting about it is that um, like in terms of probiotics, like the probiotic foods that people eat, like sauerkraut, kefir, kombucha, like those kinds of things. Um, and the supplements that most people take are usually a blend of the lactobacillus and bifidobacteria probiotics. And these are, um, you know, they're like the most common types that we use. And they are super important for helping maintaining the barrier function of the gut. But they they don't really reside in the gut like we kind of need a slow kind of ongoing um you know dose of them to kind of keep that going like when we take those probiotic supplements they don't colonize in our gut they actually come in they kind of hang out for a little while and then they leave so if we're not taking more of those in eventually we can kind of deplete our stores of them and so should everyone be taking a probiotic 
Not necessarily, but, you know, traditional cultures usually have some kind of probiotic food that Mm -hmm. they eat. Then they usually eat just a small amount with every meal. So, you know, like a little, you know, like a little quarter sized dollop of sauerkraut or a little bit of yogurt or a little bit of sourdough bread or a little bit of fermented drink like kombucha or ale or whatever, you know, like something fermented. It's like usually a small supplement to the diet that's and you're just having it with each meal you have it with each meal and it's just a good little little dose of good stuff um yeah i didn't know sourdough bread had probiotics sourdough bread is fermented by uh, a natural culture of bacteria and yeasts yeah and sourdough has the lowest gluten of any bread it does it does yeah i mean because theoretically if it's been very well fermented the gluten is broke mostly broken down by um you know the process by the process of fermentation that's happening in it. and does gluten does that affect the gut biome too is that why because so many people are allergic to gluten it seems like now yes there are a couple of reasons for that like one is that like some people are what we would say, you know, non-celiac, have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And this can often actually just be because of the type of starch, the the type of uh, carbohydrate, the fermentable carbohydrate that's in gluten is just making bacteria react. And it, this is like people who typically get bloated or gassy from eating gluten. Um, that's sort of what we're looking at. Um But then there's also a lot of other problems with gluten, one of which is that especially if it's not been organically grown, my understanding is that a lot of it is sprayed with um, chemicals, with chemicals, Uh. with with Roundup, you know, the glyphosate to speed up the process of just drying the grain after harvest, for example. Um, And glyphosate itself is really, really hard on the digestive system. So, you know, it's hard to say why this recent flare of of people being sensitive to gluten but i think that's part of it and just it's like the low quality of of gluten and the chemicals involved um so there's that and then even even the healthiest perfect wheat and gluten um just by itself wheat tends to increase the secretion of this protein in the gut called zonulin, which can make little tiny gaps open up between the cells of your small intestine. And so you've heard, I'm sure, of leaky gut. Yes. And so for all of us, no matter whether we're, we have celiac disease or we're totally healthy, gluten does this to some degree. It's kind of on a spectrum, the degree of the effect. But um, gluten you know, no matter who you are, has that effect to some degree. So if you eat a ton of it, I mean, some people, it doesn't bother them or they don't have any noticeable side effects. So I, you know, I wouldn't propose that everyone has to avoid gluten, but um, it is really commonly a problem for people and we have to kind of keep an eye on that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so if you're trying to reset your gut microbiome and try to like eliminate these things, is there a certain way you should go about doing that? In in terms of diet or other yeah, in terms practices? Of your, yeah, in terms of your diet. Because yeah. a lot of people eat breads and a lot of people eat pastas and legumes and stuff. Like, how do you, should you just cut that cold turkey if you're trying to wean that out? I mean, I think if you don't have any symptoms Issues, or problems, you shouldn't mess with things. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I you know, I feel like if you're healthy and you feel good and you don't have digestive symptoms, leave well enough alone, you know, <laughs> because... If it isn't broke, don't fix it. If it it. is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it for sure. Um, Beyond that, 
um, you know, if you are having symptoms and you're feeling like food might be part of it, you know, the very simplest elimination diet is like I was saying, just to cut out those, well, to, to cut out just the top three, the gluten, dairy, and sugar for 30 days, you know, that's like a really basic way to go about this. Um, you know, and then after the end of that 30 days, you can one by one add things back in and just see how you react. If you react, then you know, like, okay, I try this gluten after I haven't had it for a month and now I have a horrible stomach ache and I feel foggy headed. Like that's a pretty clear signal that your body's not tolerating that well. So then you could leave that behind, but then, okay, then maybe you test a bowl of yogurt and the yogurt doesn't do anything. It's like, okay, great. I can keep eating yogurt, right? You sort of test for these, um, signs and signals from your body. And then, you know, and if you have more complex things going on, it's important to kind of choose the right elimination diet. You know, there's there's certainly the Whole30 is an option, which is sort of basically a paleo diet. Um, there's something called the low FODMAP diet, which I use really commonly with IBS patients, I, you know, anybody with gut stuff, that's kind of the general place I start. It's low in fermentable carbohydrates. You know, ketogenic could be good if you're trying to lose weight and you're having the insulin sensitivity issues like we talked about. Um, I don't know. There's like a million options. There's a ton, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of times the way these diets are sold is like, oh, this one's the, the right one for everyone. And I don't believe that at all. I think it's important to kind of choose the right one. So, you, you know, if you have a lot of symptoms, you want to kind of choose one that's in the right ballpark for, for what kinds of symptoms or signs you're dealing with. And, and that's your approach. And then I, I generally find that including probiotics is an important piece of gut rehab for people. Um, Would you recommend like the pill supplement form or like just yogurt? Yeah, the, the fermented foods typically don't have a therapeutic dose, okay. really, of, of probiotics. So, um, And I usually recommend a triple probiotic protocol um, where you use a lactobacillus and bifido blend plus a saccharomyces boulardii type, which is a beneficial yeast, and then a soil-based probiotic. And you sort of slowly work all these into your diet and, you know, Again, just like with the diet, you look to see what kind of positive benefit or impact you get. If you notice nothing at all, you can, you know, say, forget it. I don't really need that. Or if you benefit, then you can, you know, include them and then slowly back off of them to the point where you feel like I'm maintaining benefit, but I don't maybe need to use this super therapeutic dose in the long term, right? And would that be like a daily supplement with that then? Yeah, like, you know, maximum you're talking like two capsules a day, you know, one in the morning, one in the evening mm-hmm. for, you know, you start, you know, with approximately a month, you know, and then reevaluate. Like, and see what happens. I'm a fan of like small scale trials, try something, evaluate how, the, evaluate the outcome and then change gears after that and see. Which is good. That's how it should be. That's how it should be. Yeah. Is dairy, since dairy, dairy is one of those top three you said mm-hmm. to cut out, is that a problem for a lot of people? It is a problem for a lot of people. There's kind of two reasons why it can be one is just the simple lactose intolerance some people lack the enzyme to digest lactose um which is the sugar in dairy products and that's pretty easily fixable with lactase enzymes like the i think they're called uh lactate is the the little enzyme pills that you can take with dairy products so that's the easy one to fix if that's the problem and then some people are sensitive to the the proteins in dairy which can also mimic, like they're similar to the gluten proteins. So if you're sensitive also to gluten, sometimes there's a bigger problem there and it's a little harder. Like 
I can't, I can't seem to get it back in my diet other, mm. I, other than like a little tiny bit of yogurt or like, you know, I can eat butter, but, uh, yeah, some people can't, can't add it back in. Does that ha- like would whole in terms of milk would like whole milk be better? I've heard people say that, oh, I can't do dairy, but if it's like whole milk or not pasteurized, then it's like their body can handle it a little bit better. Yeah. Some people are able to tolerate, uh, unpasteurized milk, raw milk, basically. Um, some people are able to tolerate, there's, the, I don't know if you've seen the A2 milk in the Mm-mm. grocery store. A2 is uh, talking about the type of, pro- there's types of protein in dairy products. So there's an A1 protein and A2 proteins and they're kind of different depending on the breed of the dairy animals. And so like goats and uh, certain cow species, uh, cow varieties have more of the A2 protein versus like the the Holsteins, like the standard black and white cows that we grow that all over America. That, for milk. that everybody thinks of for milk. Um, they have more of an A1 type milk. So some people tolerate the A2 better than the A1. And um, like they find if they're drinking just the A2 milk, they can tolerate it better so now we've there's this new trend now where the some of the dairies are selling a2 milk um i didn't know separately Mm -hmm. it's a thing do a lot of so food allergies that all stems from the mud from the gut microbiome Uh, yes for for a portion yes because i had as a kid i had Mm -hmm. a ton of food allergies and i i don't know if it's so much that i grew out of them as i got older or i just started putting up with the symptoms you know in a weird way um but yeah like i couldn't do any dairy i couldn't do gluten i couldn't really do breads i couldn't do a lot of different things Uh um but now i eat them and i'm fine for the i mean i'm walking around i'm okay yeah um but is that common like do most people grow is it like the peanut butter thing right where i don't know if you're familiar with that or i've heard about peanuts and how If you introduce kids, the reason why there's so many kids with peanut allergies now is because they weren't introduced to them as mm. kids. But if you introduce the population to peanuts and nuts as children, they'll have an allergic reaction, but they grow out of it. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's why so many kids are allergic today is because they weren't introduced as kids because parents were freaking out about it. And now we have a huge increase in peanut allergy, specifically here in the U.S. Yeah. I I don't know if I buy that theory mm-hmm. <laughs> of of genesis but but I do think um you know allergists do have this theory of like low and slow increasing exposure to help people overcome allergies and I think it's successful in some contexts so it's you know I think it does work in some ways and contexts but why are people getting more food allergies? I don't know. I think, I mean, my personal thoughts and, you know, I don't really have data to back this up or anything. It's just sort of a theory. But um, I mean, I think that our environment is is more and progressively more and progressively toxic. We're generally eating very poor, low quality foods, highly processed foods on the whole, you know, soda and cereal and bread and tortillas and crackers and chips and junk, just junk food. And then even, you know, a lot of the stuff on the shelf at the grocery store that's supposed to be kind of healthy, like a can of soup, is full of garbage, you know. Um, like I wouldn't eat any of it. Uh, you know, like something like a like a can of Campbell's soup is full of a lot of toxic, what I consider toxic ingredients. So I think collectively our bodies are being exposed to a lot of like this whole food system that's full of of chemicals and and artificial ingredients and processed foods that are 
that are affecting our gut microbiome and our immune system. And then, you know, the air we breathe is increasingly toxic where our water is not very clean. Um, the clothing we wear is treated with flame retardant. Our furniture is treated with flame, you know, just like there's all these exposures and, you know, not to make people paranoid. I don't, you know, I don't want to, you know, sound like, oh God, we can't go anywhere and nothing's safe. But I do, I do think that collectively all of these things add up and that over time, you know, we're, we're sort of like the frog in the slowly boiling water. Yeah. Right. And that these are to me these are signals about that they're signs of this wider ecosystem effect in our culture and society and i don't know <laughs> it the chemical thing freaks me out when i think about it for too long mm -hmm. because when you when you really start to look at especially with plastics mm -hmm. and how yeah like there's just so many different factors that are leaching into the food and like clothes, like you said, just leaching into our body that mm -hmm. we really don't understand yeah. the long-term ramifications for. We just know it's not good, but nobody seems to be alarmed enough to alter anything. Yeah. And I listened to, I listened to a podcast a couple of weeks ago with this doctor who was talking about all these phthalates that are leaching from these plastics and how they're shrinking um, taint sizes in, in the population and how they're making people infertile and decreasing sperm counts and testosterone in both men and women and it's crazy it's like why is nobody why does nobody want to talk about this and then you hear about like monsanto products that are just being sprayed without regard across all of the food that you're eating and it's like what are the um you know hormones being pumped into cows that are then slaughtered to you know, beef them up, or probiotics or antibiotics or whatever they're, everything that they're yeah. sticking in. And it's like, that's what we're consuming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, crazy. It's crazy. And it's so, dif it's diffuse. So it's, it's. That's it, the problem, right? Is it's not just one person doing it. It's yeah. across the board. Yeah. I was reading this article last week about just the other day about climate change. And it was kind of talking about this idea of like, you know, it's here, it's right now. We're experiencing all these heat waves and freak storms and all these things but you know the week that the heat wave was going on in the in the pacific northwest like what were we seeing in the news we we're seeing the news about this building collapse it's like discreet and tangible and it's something we can really grok we can really get it because it's so physical but these diffuse experiences of events far flung all over the planet happening simultaneously are only affecting you know people in one city or this city over here or you know parents with children with food allergies you know it's like a minority even though it's like it's increasing it's still a very small percentage of people and so yeah you know, why is nobody talking about it because it's just it's difficult to get it yeah right and how do you how do you tackle a problem that's that widespread that widespread and it's really yeah it's difficult to understand and then not only to understand but to problem solve it because it's it's so big and huge <laughs> so what does your diet consist of uh, people keep asking me that lately <laughs> <laughs> that's a popular question uh, yeah it is a popular question um so i have some i have some chronic health issues like you know i haven't been able to quote unquote cure myself um and so i i have a lot of food sensitivities that prevent me from eating an ordinary diet. I mean, I eat a lot of really wonderful, yummy things. Um, so 
this is why I say we have to get in the right neighborhood too of, of the um, therapeutic diets. Like I started with the keto diet. It was completely the wrong template for me. What I've moved into is um, first it was paleo with rice, you know, paleo is grain free. So I was eating a paleo, you know, gluten free, dairy free, otherwise grain besides rice, grain free diet. Um, but I've been just trying to eat a template that matches what my body needs. So for me, that's uh, my carbs are rice and winter squash potatoes or sweet potatoes. And my proteins are animal proteins. I can eat chicken or turkey or buffalo or fish or other seafood. And I eat a wide range of vegetables and fruits. Um, but I kind of find that certain types of vegetables from different – so like I mentioned the low FODMAP diet a little bit ago. It's like some of the high FODMAP vegetables bother me, so I avoid those. Some of the things I can't eat are – High in what's called oxalates. I don't know if that's something you've. I feel like it rings a bell, but I don't. I'm not quite sure what yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oxalic acid is normally present in certain kinds of foods. Primary, like it's super high in things like spinach and chard and rhubarb is a really, really high one. Um, also, peanuts, soy, wheat, chocolate, chia, almonds. Like a lot of these like health foods that a lot of people start eating when they eat a paleo diet. Yeah. You're saying that. I'm like, oh, aren't those all like super good for those you? Those are all. And, yeah. And that's the thing. Like every food, you know, with the exception of like super processed junk food is actually good for you. Mm -hmm. The difference is just like, what do you tolerate? Right. So um, anyways, I'm sensitive to a number of those oxalate foods, some of them. And like if I eat almonds, it'll really screw up my gut and my back. So I have to avoid them. So I, I mean, I eat I eat an omnivorous diet. I don't eat dairy. I avoid uh, beef and pork because I don't feel well when I eat them. Um, I have lately been including a little more sugar in my diet than I used to, but for a long time I was completely sugar-free. Definitely 100% gluten-free and corn-free. I can't tolerate either of those. So I can eat small amounts of legumes. So, you know, I just sort of piece it together with what I can tolerate. It's still difficult for me to eat in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it's just um, like I have a I have a you know I was eventually diagnosed with a condition called endometriosis and I had a surgery to remove the endometriosis but I think that whatever underlying mechanisms were happening to drive that disease process are still there and you know I'm still working on the puzzle I haven't figured it out for myself personally mm -hmm. um, and so I have to just keep working on it and Diet has been a really tremendous tool for me to manage those symptoms and, and minimize the effects of things for myself. Do you mind if I ask what endometriosis? I've heard I've heard it, but I don't. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah, we're gonna talk about lady parts. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I knew it had something to do with the reproductive. Yeah, system. exactly. Yeah, so um, so in a normal reproductive system, the lining of the uterus builds up every month and then sheds. That's called that's called the endometria endometrium is the lining of the uterus. And so when it sheds, that's when a woman has her period. Mm -hmm. So with endometriosis, um, material that's like the lining of the uterus is on the outside of the uterus, somewhere else in the body cavity. So it can be anywhere in the in that body, in the abdominal cavity. So it can be on the abdominal wall. It can be attached to the intestines. It can be attached to the bladder. It can be attached all over the, you know, on the outside of the organs. And so... 
those tissues respond to the regular hormone swings every month, uh, just like the lining of the uterus. They sort of build up and swell, and then they shed just like the lining of the uterus, but then there's nowhere for them to go. And so that um, shedding of material causes uh, inflammation and tremendous pain and then scar tissue in the abdominal area. So that's it's a it's a pretty nasty disease. And it's what's interesting is that about 10% of women have endometriosis, but it's still hugely underfunded for research. And many, many doctors really don't understand it, don't really treat it very well. And uh, like 10% of women is is like, it's about the a number of people that have diabetes. And like, think about- Which is a significant number. 10% a is a high number. Significant number of people. And like, you know, 10%, that's like a significant number of you know, like diabetes, of course, has a huge amount of research and funding and, you know, public health programs. And, you know, every doctor is trained on how to help their patients with diabetes. But, um, yeah, it's this kind of because it's like a women's disease, it's sort of a little bit like, oh, you know, women are supposed to have pain with their periods or, you know. It's kind of brushed aside. It's kind of brushed aside. Yeah. And do they know what causes it? No. No. This is part of the puzzle. It's – um. There's some speculation that it may actually be an autoimmune disease, but that's not totally clear. Um, there's, I was recently reading a, a clinical research paper that was suggesting that it has something to do with progesterone resistance, that like body tissues are not, I don't know. And there's some speculation too that those tissues end up in that cavity as your fetus, you as a fetus are developing. Mm. So there's a lot of theories. There's not a lot of really clear understanding Concrete, of like, yeah, what causes it or why has it happened and why does it, you know, keep going? Even though, like, I had all of my endometriosis removed in a surgery, and um, but I still have symptom flares that feel as though I have disease material in my body so it's kind of like oh that's what, weird what's going on there i don't know you know but you found some relief through your diet yeah i diet definitely minimizes my symptoms and so you know i have like two kinds of clients that i help like one are people who make a change or a couple of changes and we support some things and they feel like dramatically better you know and they effectively have a cure or like symptoms are like you know 80 to 90 percent resolved and then people with sort of longer term chronic issues, it's more of a, it's often like, you know, we're going to minimize symptoms. We're going to keep digging for root causes. We're going to keep investigating. But, you know, like at this stage after like 15, 10, 15 years of this, like, I don't think I'm ever going to find a cure. I think I'm just going to, I'm going to learn, I'm going to keep learning how to manage it. And maybe research will catch up and there'll be some breakthrough, but you know, but, but diet and lifestyle practices like, you know, sleeping enough or getting exercise, like these things do can and do make a difference, even with chronic health conditions, you mm -hmm. know, it's kind of the best we can do in some cases. Are a lot of the patients that come to you, are they going through doctors through like the general system like that first and then coming to you because they're, they've hit the end of the road? So yeah, I think so. You know, I, there's there's a couple categories of people like a lot of people will go to their doctor first just because they have insurance and mm -hmm. it's they that they don't have to pay for it out of pocket and only when they've exhausted those options and they get fed up with their doctors being like well I don't know there's nothing here <laughs> then they come to see me and then the other people I work with of course are the people who just in the beginning are like 
I don't trust doctors or I don't believe what doctors have to say or I, th- I, I know that natural is better. So I want to work that option first before trying medications or trying to get a more formal diagnosis. Yeah, which is a better approach. I think medications, I mean, I'm, I'm not anti-medication by any means, but I think, you know, the less we can put into our in our bodies that have been manipulated in that way, the better. Absolutely. I, mean, I say that and I would go grab an Advil, of course, if I had a headache, <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, some of those, some of the medication that they just dish out is, is really hard for your body. I mean, I was on antibiotics. I had an infection in my throat for a while, a couple of years ago, and they had me on antibiotics off and on for mm-hmm. a couple months, and that just wrecks your body. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, like that wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. You don't want to go, you don't want to take meds if you don't have to. Right. And I think that's the first stop especially if you go to a doctor mm-hmm. and it doesn't necessarily have to be all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, certainly with infections, you do, yes. do yes. want to see yeah, a doctor. I'm not going to go. Yeah. I'm not going to try to change my diet for the throat infection, of course. Right. But yeah, it's, it's true. There's a lot of low hanging fruit and, you know, in my line of work, it's like, I work with people who are willing to make a, a change. So there's plenty of people out there who have health problems, but they don't want to change their diet. And I can't, it's hard. It is hard. Yeah. And I can't help anybody who's who's in that boat or who's stubborn about it. But for the people who are willing to make changes and shift things, yeah, it it's it's basically the low hanging fruit and it's it's what you have control over in your day-to-day life. It you know, it's actually really empowering to know that, okay, I'm gonna figure out what I tolerate and what I can do. And, you know. I, I believe it really is, you know, 60 to 70% of our health is that management on our own time in our own kitchen, in our own bedroom, in our own house. Um, and then, you know, 20 to 30% of it is like dealing with a doctor who has more expertise and can help with testing and diagnosis and maybe medication, you know, if you need that. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, people deal with the diet and lifestyle piece and things largely clear up or they clear up enough to the point where they're tolerable and they don't need to do anything else. Yeah, I think for whatever reason, people have this weird disconnect between what they put into their body and how their body performs. Like you could eat, you know, if you're eating pizza five days a week and then you're like, man, I just, you know, I don't feel good. I feel tired all the time. Mm -hmm. I think I've got something going on with me. It's like, well, maybe it's the pizza, but it's hard (laughs) because I mean, pizza especially is so good in pasta. Like all these foods that are bad for you taste amazing. And it's just, it's almost having that discipline to be like, okay, in moderation, but yeah, do I really want to feel bad 30 minutes from now until I go to bed just for five minutes of of enjoying what I'm eating on my plate. Like, yeah. is that really worth it to me? Right. It's funny that you use the pizza example because I had a client recently who said something like that about every time I eat, I can't remember if it was pizza or bread or something, you know, it was like every time I eat X, I feel bad. And I said to them, I was like, well, if you eat, if you feel bad every time you eat it, why do you eat it? And they were like, I don't know, because it tastes good. And then you know, we went back to our normal whatever. And then when I saw them again, they said, gosh, you know, I really took that to heart what you said. And I (laughs) realized that I do feel better when I don't eat that. So, you know, just pointing that out kind of helped that person see that connection. And, you know, that's so much of it is just helping people see those connections between their symptoms and what they're eating. 
And it's obscure sometimes. It's not always really obvious. And, and not a lot of people talk about it. I think it's more it's becoming more popular now to talk mm -hmm. about nutrition, but it's still kind of under the radar. Like that's the last thing people go to is what I'm putting into my body. Yeah. Yeah, we'd like to be able to just pop a pill and have it go yeah, how we want. And be fine. That would be Keep easier. eating the pizza. Yeah, I don't have any more problems Keep anymore. Keep eating the cake. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm glad to see that it's changing. I'm I'm excited that people are like more focused on eating healthier and like optimizing their body, I guess, in some sense. But it, for some people it's hard. And it and it sucks. But I think I don't know. I think once you get past the craving phase of the foods, I think that's mm -hmm. when you're like, okay, I can, I can do this. Yeah. But that first, I mean, if all you're doing is eating junk food and you try to stop, then it's like, oh, I got to get some candy or this is going to go sideways. Yeah. Yeah. It often requires a little bit more habit development yes. around cooking and shopping, um, trying new foods. I, I had, I was talking with a person about changing their diet and I was recommending particular things and they were like, I'm sorry, I don't even know what that is. That vegetable that you're mentioning, I've never heard of that. I don't, where do I even find that in the grocery store? So, you know, there, there's that element of needing to change habits around shopping and cooking and storing food and making food and eating together with your family. It's, I mean, these are things we're meant to do as people, but our modern lifestyles often take us away from that and have us Eating on the go, eating in the car, getting fast food, just grabbing something at the gas station. And there's so many layers of that that aren't healthy. It's not just like the food itself is unhealthy, but then eating in the car all squished up isn't great. Or, um, you know, what was I going to say? I don't remember. Um, I mean, even just scarfing down your food on your... 10-minute lunch break is not good for yeah, you. Yeah, totally not good. Or, uh, yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. You know, like eating alone, you know, not not sitting down with people in your in your life that you love, like your friends, your family, your kids, your parents, whoever, you know, just that's a – like we're designed to do that, you know. There's yeah. definitely a different feeling when you do that, right? Mm -hmm. I think sometimes – I mean, me personally – I go back and forth between thinking of food as like an experience, like when you go out to dinner and, mm -hmm. and you're sitting around with people that you care about and you're just having a good time. And then I go, I'll flip and it'll be like, okay, now I'm just eating, you know, chicken and rice to try to get my body performing as well as it can. Mm -hmm. And I think it's all about finding that, that balance of mm -hmm. eating things that are good for you, which is hard because they put sugar in everything. Yeah. And you've got things like, um, vegetable oil or canola canola oil which are not good for your body right but how many people know that i mean how many people are just you know cooking up their steak with with oil that your their body doesn't know how to process right. and you're just like that we should not be i think they need to start teaching this in school at a young age i think mm. is the only way that we're going to get through that because how else i mean how are you supposed to know like nobody ever taught me about what is good to eat and trying to figure out what your body can deal with and what it, you know, what it kind of struggles with. And maybe, oh, this is why your stomach hurts. It's because you're eating these foods, you know, mm -hmm. or your body is rejecting this. And maybe we should try to stay away from that or just do it in moderation. Nobody talks about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's well, true. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you solve that. <laughs> and I'm sure it's got to be frustrating for you on some part because you know this. And then 
to try to, I mean, I'm sure with your clients to just try to lean them in that way of like saying, okay, this is what we can do and it's going to help you, but we just got to get you there first. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's tricky. And anytime you're dealing with human beings, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And people are attached to their comfort foods. They're attached to, the, to their normal routines and they don't want to change things. Um, and, and yet, I don't know, just as a coach, it's like, that's normal. It's normal for that to happen to people, but we always have to just bring it back to what people's goals are and to bring some of their motivation to bear. You know, it's like, what is it that you want for yourself? Everybody's got something. Mm -hmm. They have some reason they're reaching out to me. You know, either they want to have energy to play with their kids or their grandkids, or they want to be able to work and do the job that they love and their symptoms are getting in the way, or they want to be able to travel freely again. And they just, they're kind of stuck at home with their symptoms or, you know, they want to pursue their art. There's, you know, these are like deep inner yearnings and longings that we all have. And so that's, that's, you know, the human part of it is like, all of this stuff is just theory and, you know, mechanics really about eating, but we have to have something that we're working for and working towards that we care about. Otherwise, we're not willing to do anything at all. Yeah, you got to have a goal. Yeah. You got to have something you're trying yeah. to reach. Otherwise, what's, I mean, what's, nobody's going to give up pizza just for the fun of giving up pizza. It's yeah. Like, no, I, mean, I, gotta, I mean, you might for a week, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then you're going to, yeah, and then you're going to be over. You're going to be like, no, I need, I need pizza. Yeah. Is that the hardest part is trying to get a client to like stick, stick to the plan? It like is, not branch off with the comfort food. It is challenging. Or, you know, honestly, one of the things that's harder even than that, because, you know, people generally know that we're going to be changing some things up. And, you know, people have a hard time complying, really. So that that's true. But but the thing that complicates it is kind of the this culture of uh, of research and, you know, the YouTube rabbit hole. And, you know, I have clients, we get started, I have them all set up, we have a plan and it's based on, you know, here, I've done this whole assessment of your case and I think here's what we need to focus on. And then we start it off and then they come back to me a month later and they're like, oh, well, I heard this other guy on YouTube and he said that XYZ is what I should be focusing on. So now I'm focusing on that. I'm like, wait, 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 you know. We just had a good plan. We just had a whole plan and it's really specific and personalized for you. So you know, it's it's challenging to keep people on track in that way because there's so many distractions. And I, you know, there are exceptions to this, but I just generally find that a lot of people are presenting information from this perspective that this is the way to do it. And that's just it. it th this is true for everyone. And I, I just really call bullshit on that. You know, it's not, everybody's unique and we all need a unique approach and unique specifics and we need to customize things for ourselves and we need to be paying very close attention to how our body's responding. We can't just blanketly say, oh, everyone should be keto. Everyone needs to quit eating carbs. You know, everyone needs to go carnivore. We can't say that. And um, so honestly, like that's one of the hardest parts for me is, is that part you know i didn't even think about that yeah but there's so much information online i could see that just happening all the time all so the just time. going down a rabbit hole and be like no i need to go to this diet now all the time or 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 just you know well i want to work with you but i am gonna i don't know i i found this protocol online and i'm just gonna try this protocol with no support or help you know i'm just gonna eat this pile of herbs every day for you know and 
it's like, oh, okay. So you've been doing that now for how long? How's that working for you? You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I've seen that a lot. So, and hopefully that person will come back to me. <laughs> you know, I was just like, really? You're not going to, I don't think you're going to get the result you're hoping yeah, for with that. Yeah. You know, like you, we need to, we need to be having this conversation about like, how, how's your body responding? How do you properly use that tool? How do you work it in slowly? How do you stop? How do you tell if it's hurting you or not? You know, when your clients find you, is it people who are like towards the beginning stage, I guess, of the journey where they have like really mild symptoms? Maybe they just have like a stomach ache or they're not, they're kind of feeling lethargic or they don't have a lot of energy. Or is it normally like more severe, like autoimmune deficiencies and they've exhausted the road? It, it varies a lot, okay. but but I would say most people are a little more on the complex side. That's what, because it seems like most people don't initially like, oh, my stomach hurts. It might be my food. Maybe I should go talk to somebody. Like, it seems like it normally gets pushed back until the symptoms are a little worse or yeah. a little more severe. Yeah, it's usually, you know, they've usually been dealing with stuff for at least a couple of years. And they've already exhausted all the, you know, they've been to the GI. They've had an endoscopy a colonoscopy. They've been tested for celiac. They've been tested for various things and it's all come up negative. And doctors like you're you have IBS. And IBS is just basically an umbrella. It's a catch-all. It's a catch-all umbrella. It just means you have abdominal pain and changes with your stool for 6 months or more. That's all it means. It's really in depth. It's pretty in depth and you know, there's like a bunch of medications they might use to try and you know, move it one way or the other, depending on whether the person's trending toward constipation or diarrhea, but like, that's it. Mm -hmm. That's all they have. And they don't really know how to guide people with the diet piece or this other stuff. So, so it's usually people around that point where they've, they've already exhausted the GI docs and they, and they've maybe been to several of them even. And they're just like, why am I feeling like this? And up to, you know, I have a, a new client right now who has been dealing with this stuff their whole life, you know, and they still don't know what to do or where to go. So um, it kind of runs the gamut. But I would say on, in general, it's sort of people who are in the like two to five year zone who are like, I'm fed up with this. I don't know what to do. And are most of them finding relief by changing their diet and taking these steps? Well, it it, it, it really varies, varies for people because like, there's so many variables, right? It's like, are they willing to do what I'm requesting you know, sometimes we're just stuck in this loop of like, okay, here's what you should do. And they're like, okay. And then they don't, they come back and they haven't done it. So then we have to keep working on that. So those people don't tend to see too much result. The people who do change things do tend to see some positive results. And we sort of slowly work in the different layers of things that are helpful. Like I had um, two clients over the summer or in the spring, I guess, um, that, you know, one had just like chronic daily diarrhea like could hardly leave the house and diet was like narrowed down to just a couple of foods already it was kind of like what am I going to do and we like slowly we got the the all the bathroom trips kind of under control and then slowly started rebuilding the diet for this client and so then now they're eating basically a normal diet and we also identified um, a kind of underlying infection that hadn't been dealt with so um, and we added probiotics for them. And that whole, that combination just made a huge difference such that their gastroenterologists were like, 
how did you do that? <laughs> you know? So I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and then the other client was a, um, a cancer survivor who uh, was the other, they were trending the other way. They were really constipated and bloated and they couldn't figure it out. And, you know, in my initial assessment, it turned up that the symptoms had started when they had tried to change their diet for to, for cancer. They had read that sugar was bad. And so they stopped eating sugar and they stopped eating fruit. And But then they, they started eating all these vegetables because they heard that fiber was really good for cancer and it was preventative for cancer. Well, they had increased all these vegetables that were high FODMAP vegetables. And so they were, you know, they were increasing beans and cabbage and like broccoli and all these things that are healthy foods, but in the wrong combinations weren't right. So um, we got, I got her on a, um, a low FODMAP diet and we added a couple of supplements into the picture. And, you know, within uh, like a month, she, she was like, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom regularly again. So, you know, it's just sort of, it varies for people how long it takes. The the other client I was talking about, we you know, it took us three months or so to kind of work work them back up to a more regular diet. So that's just kind of an example of, mm-hmm. of what happens. It, it sort of varies. And then some people, some people we just you know, lately I'm I'm having people start with stress relief as a really important part of things. Um, stress is very commonly an aggravator for gut stuff. And so I'm having people start with some kind of really high powered uh, brain balancing meditation recordings. And it's just really profound, like it just dials down the knob of the symptom intensity for people in the beginning. And then we can, then it's sort of clear that like, oh, a huge part of this is my stress about these symptoms and freaking out and wanting them to be different. And if I just turn the dial down, then I can calm down about that. And then I can focus my attention on the remaining symptoms. So that that's a real thing, right? You can, you, the brain is so crazy, but the fact that you can like manifest systems in your own body, like it sounds crazy when you say it, but then it's, it's a real thing. And there are people that, you know, it's a real, their symptoms are all psychosomatic, but they cause real detriment to their lives. I wouldn't say that they're all psychosomatic. I think some of them are real, but then you can just, it runs away with itself. Mm. You know, like your anxiety about the symptoms then drives it, out of drives it out of control and makes it even worse. I also find that a significant number of people that come to me with gut stuff have some background in tr- of trauma. They have some kind of grief, loss, you know, sexual trauma, abuse trauma, you know, substance abuse some sense abusing parents or, you know, mentors or people in their life. So like there's a lot of that. And so it's 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 a pretty interesting overlap. I wouldn't guess that. In my mind. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs score. Have you ever heard of this? I, I think I've heard of the acronym. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically just that adverse childhood experiences produce lifelong negative impacts on people and it makes intuitive sense but it's been quantified in all this research so um, you know people who grow up with um, parents who are verbally or physically abusive sexually abusive they've been sexually abused they grew up in a house where parents were abusing drugs or alcohol grew up in a household where one or both parents were incarcerated these people have significantly higher risk level for autoimmune diseases and chronic diseases of all kinds oh wow like like 
not just like a little bit of an increase, but like a really significant increase in risk for chronic diseases and health problems. That's crazy. It's totally crazy. So it's kind of like if we could handle that kind of poverty and the like the kinds of social situations that lead to some of these problems and handle, you know, poverty, abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, like we could dramatically improve the health of the next generation. God, that is so crazy. Mm-hmm. I it I, I mean I almost don't even know what to say because it seems like there are so many things that that tie back into your experiences and what you undergo as a child and how that really just has this ripple effect through the rest of your life. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that you say that and it's like, yeah, that makes sense, but then you start, you know, tacking on things like this or tacking on things like the homelessness problem and all the the stressors and, you know, pre-indicators for that. And it ties back into childhood abuse. And it's like, where, you know, what happens to these kids and what happens to you at a young age really sets you up for the rest of your life. And I'm someone that likes to, you know, I like the pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. I think that gets shit on a lot nowadays. And there are some things <laughs> wrong with it. But I like the idea of you, of you putting your head down and just, you know, working on yourself and trying to better yourself. Because I think yeah. a lot of people nowadays, they want to, you know, point at the problem or, or pass the blame and they mm-hmm. don't want to recognize, okay, I had some part in this. Mm-hmm. But in a weird way, the more I talk to people like you and the more I start delving outside of, you know, what I'm familiar with into these other zones, I realize, man, so much of it is what is inflicted on you when you're a kid and what you absorb because you're just like a sponge i mean you're taking in all these external factors and it can set you up really well and you can you know it can set a great foundation for the rest of your life or it can really mess you up and i think hearing that man that just struck a chord that is yeah that's crazy it's crazy and and you know the sort of physiological mechanism behind it is really this idea about the nervous system and how the nervous system gets wired, the brain and the nervous system. And so if you're a child and you're constantly living, living in an environment where you're experiencing threats of, to your safety, your survival, or your feeling of personal safety, you're always on guard. You're always, you, you sleep with one ear or one eye open. And this leaves you kind of in a position where you are constantly on edge. And that constant vigilance leaves you exhausted and, um, you know, is read by the body as just like threat and stress. And so that can translate in all these other ways downstream in your life where, you know, you can't relax or you don't stay with partners long or you, um, you know, you're just very vulnerable to um, all kinds of things. And maybe you you know, if your parents are kind of messed up, like you don't have a safety net either. You know, once you become an adult, you don't have a place to to go to go yeah. if if you you know lose your job or run out of money or get there's sick. nobody there to catch you. There's nobody there to catch you. So, um, and it just sets the and it literally sets the brain up in a pattern where it can't balance itself very easily. It's vulnerable, and then you add any kind of stress or whatnot onto that situation it can really derail people so yeah I had I had a client um a while back who grew up with 
a, a, a parent who was kind of absent and, and kind of focused on their own thing. And they were homeless a lot growing up and they moved around a lot and, you know, just all these kinds of intense situations. Um, and growing up, they never felt secure or safe and they were hungry a lot <laughs> too. So, and, you know, this person now has chronic health problems and, and they're, you know, trying to hold it together for their kid but it's like hard and it's just interesting to me. I see it over and over and over again, over and over and over again. It's yeah. so unfortunate. I know it is. And so, yeah, I'm bringing this, this nervous system balancing piece in with the work too, because it's, it's, we have to address it. It's like the elephant in the room that sets people up for this whole thing. Do you feel like a lot of people are addressing that or this is like a new revelation? I mean, in my practitioner community, I'm I'm starting to hear a lot of people talk about it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's talked about in a lot of different ways, but I wouldn't say it's mainstream. Yet. Yeah, because I, I mean, not that I'm in that community or anything, yeah. but that's the first I've, I've heard about that extent or yeah. that side of it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting online programs that are designed to help people with this problem. And, you know, it, it has... I've seen it have profound effects for some people, and I, I think it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it makes I mean it makes sense mm -hmm. when you think about it, and it's almost like, you know, soldiers that go off to war, and you're living in this high stress environment, and your body's at ten for months and months, if not years, on end, and then you come back, and your body's just wrecked because mm -hmm. that's not a sustainable. That heightened level of just being on edge is not, yeah. it's not sustainable for no. your body. Your body wasn't designed to be at a 10 constantly. No. And you witness gruesome things and horrible things and yeah. It, it just weighs on you. Yeah. And, and then, as a child, I mean, experiencing that in a rough household would almost be like amplifying it by 10 yeah. or 20. Right. You don't even have any way to make any sense of that whatsoever. And you don't, you don't really understand what's happening because you're, no. you're a kid. Totally. Like, and if that's all that you've been, you know, subjected to, that's all you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, where do you, where do you go from there? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I, <laughs> I feel like my, my mind is blown. I mean, it just, that is so sad. I would not have thought that, I mean, it makes sense. Your mind plays a role in everything. And so the fact that that would tie into your stress would tie into your gut, microbiome it, i mean it's like duh why why did you not think about that in a way you know i almost feel like why am i so blown away but it's i just i wouldn't have thought you know well there's kind of a i mean just the physiology of it too is that you know there's a nerve superhighway between the brain and the, and the gut um so it's called the vagus nerve which maybe you've heard about in your mm -hmm. various researches but um yeah, the vagus nerve is, is, it's actually, you know, we sort of think about, oh, the brain is the big controller and it sends messages throughout the body, but the gut also communicates back to the brain. And so, you know, that, you know, when you get, um, you know, nervous about something and you have butterflies in your stomach and you, you, you know, you feel like, oh, oh you get like a stomach ache, <laughs> you're going to have to public speak, go do public speaking or go do something new that you're nervous about or go on a first date or whatever, <laughs> you know, you're kind of like, oh, it's that's that's the vagus nerve communicating and it can impact the the gut microbiome and whatever the gut microbiome is doing if it's really 
out of control and there's lots of infections or things going on, that can also influence the brain and the brain chemistry and your mood as well. Like a lot of people with gut problems report things like brain fog, depression, anxiety, insomnia, you know, these kinds of... That's a big one, right? Mm -hmm. The mental health and your diet. Absolutely. Is a huge factor. And again, more people are talking about it now, but that was almost like too taboo in a weird way where people didn't want to touch on that. Yeah. It was like, no, you have to take meds to cure depression or to right. cure bipolar. You you can't do that with diet. And with exercise, whenever I bring up exercise, people will be like, no, you you can't say that. Like people need to take their meds. But right. It's like, no, you could, you could alter your diet mm -hmm. and, you know, go take a walk or do some physical exercise and it might help. It might not help you. You might have to take medication, but it, it might help. It does help. I think, yeah. I mean, and that's worth it's worth trying if nothing else. I, I have lived with anxiety and depression my whole adult life and I have not medicated myself. I've very consciously not medicated myself. I, I've at times been almost open to it, you know, when, when symptoms were bad and I, I've taken more of a lifestyle and nutrition approach and I have it mostly under control. You know, like when stress gets worse, then maybe I start to have more problems, but it's absolutely possible. And, you know, yeah, if people feel like they want to take medication. I certainly don't, you know, have any judgment about that. Um, but I do know that, you know, we can we can do a lot with with nutrition and supplements and, you know. Exercise is certainly one of them. Sleep, <laughs> getting enough sleep is huge. Not staring um, at your phone until four in the morning, like that's a big one. Totally, yeah, all of those things. And that's one of the things that I mean, tying back into the whole medication thing. That's what bugs me about that is these people. As soon as you say, "Oh, I have depression," or "Or I think I have anxiety," it's like the the meds just start flowing. Yeah, and it's like yeah. there are steps. Not that that is a bad thing. I think if they help you, that's fantastic. I don't mm -hmm. want to discourage people from taking those medications. Yeah, but I think the first step should be trying to alter these other mm -hmm. factors in your life that are going to have a smaller effect, you know, exercise, yeah. diet, sleep. Yeah. What you're consuming in your life, like yeah. content wise with your with TV and with social media, like totally. changing these things and just seeing if it has any tangible effect before we go down the path of meds. Definitely. Definitely. There's a really interesting um, clinical psychologist that, has been working in this sort of functional medicine um, gut brain space. Her name's Kelly Brogan. So if you haven't ever checked her workout, I'll have to check her uh, out. She she wrote a really amazing book called I believe it's called Change Your Mind: How to Change Your Mind. Um, she basically stopped prescribing psychiatric meds to her patients because she basically she do, she did a deep dive in the research herself and found that there basically was almost no research supporting their use. Like they basically were no better than placebo or just slightly better than a placebo. Oh, wow. And and she also went through a period of time where she was having some mental health challenges and, you know, felt like I'm not really sick. Like I have to, you know, so she, it, she's an interesting person and has been doing some really interesting work over the last five to 10 years or so on this topic. And, um, you know, really works to help people resolve their depression and anxiety without medication. I will have to check out that yeah. book. That yeah. sounds fascinating. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I have to ask, what is, what, you said you went 
through some additional schooling to mm-hmm. be a nutritional health coach, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is the difference between that and a nutritionist? Because you sound incredibly well versed. I mean, I'm sitting here <laughs> yeah. talking to you like, wait, okay, I gotta. Yeah, well, you remember I when I said I, I said I think I'm a, I'm qual I'm just as qualified yeah, you, probably. I, at face value, I would say <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So. Uh, I mean, I actually am not sure what's involved in becoming a certified nutritionist or diet. I mean, I think there's college coursework, basically. It's like a four-year degree or maybe mm-hmm. a two-year degree. Um, I'm not exactly sure about the requirements. Um, the training that I did was uh, I did a whole year program that was um, in health coaching. So that's the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. That's sort of like probably the most well-known health coach training right now in America. There's lots of others, but that's the kind of the big one. It's based in New York. And then I also, um, simultaneous to that, did a program called Functional Diagnostic Nutrition that trained me in um, how to use several functional medicine lab tests. So um, gut microbiome testing and SIBO testing. Um, We looked at organic acids testing and um, hormone testing and stuff like that. So that was like a deep dive training into those things and sort of the physiology behind what you're trying to impact there. And then and then I did a whole another whole year training in this program called um, Full Body Systems that's uh, with the Functional Nutrition Alliance. They're based in Portland, Oregon. And they really just provided this missing piece for me, which was a deep dive into the physiology of food and diet and lifestyle. So you know, we do, it's like a deep dive into the main systems of the body through a whole year. And um, it's really fascinating. And it's so important to understand how nutrients, vitamins, minerals, foods, diets affect the physiology. I mean, that's like we have to be able to read what things are doing for our clients in their bodies rather than just, I mean, like I see a lot of the green people that have gone through some of these other trainings, you know, they, they get, they're like, oh, I have my first client. And they have this, this, and this. Should I give them this diet or that diet? I'm like, if you're asking that question, you shouldn't be working with clients yet. You yeah. know, like you have to have some idea of what you're trying to do. So um, anyways, and then and then I was able to do a mentorship with the main um, mentor in that school, um, Andrea Nakayama, for another nine, six or nine months or something like that. Or it's sort of like a mastermind group where we just deep dive. But what was interesting is we didn't do more physiology in that, although we had a little of that, but it was more about the art and science of uh, empathy and and practice and like how to really meet people where they are and help them make changes. So um, it's it was sort of like advanced work really in coaching um, and, and, you know, more information isn't always what's needed for people. It's really more often about building relationships and helping them connect with their body and figure out sustainable ways to make changes that are going to work for them. Yeah. Regardless of what I think they should do or how I think they should do it. It's sort of the question is, you know, so often becomes more like, what are you, uh, you know, what do you think you could do? Or, you know, how, you know, what do you think you could change? <laughs> it's almost like bringing them into the process. Absolutely. Instead of excluding them and just telling them, this is what you have to do. Here are the steps. Exactly. You're almost making them semi-accountable with you. It's, it's really about a partnership. Yeah. And, and really medical care should be like this. You know, the best doctors, if you, I don't know if you've spent much time with doctors, but the best doctors are the ones who are willing to work with you. Um, I work with, personally, from my own health issues, I work with um, Dr. Peachy at North Coast Natural Naturopathic Medicine in McKinleyville. And, you know, we have a really good partnership. And um, 
you know, I go to her with things that are going on and I say, what do you think? And she says, I think we should do this. And I say, okay, well, I'm not so comfortable with that, but what about this? And so, you know, we just have a conversation about it and, or I'll come to her and say, you know, oh, I'm thinking about this thing because this is what I've observed. What do you think about that? Could we try this? And she's like, sure, we can try that. So, you know, that partnership is where the magic happens. And without it, we can't really get anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's incredibly important. Yeah. You think you would think that medicine would I mean, it should be that way. Mm -hmm. It should well, it should be mm -hmm. a more preventative approach. Right. But it's it's more, oh, we've got the Band-Aid. So let's just wait mm -hmm. for something to happen and then we'll deal with it. Yeah. Which is, I think, I mean, I think that's why, you know, a majority of the country is obese and has all these health ailments is because we're waiting for the injury to happen so we can fix it instead of dealing with the issues leading up to it. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds, that sounds fascinating. I mean, so you went through a lot of schooling for this mm -hmm. and you got a mentorship program. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, I'm sitting across from you and I'm like, she is like, you, it's easy to tell, you know what you're talking about. And I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm just trying to keep up over here. <laughs> so I felt like I had to ask cause it, I mean, I don't know what goes into being a nutritionist either, but I mean, yeah. you definitely sound qualified to speak on everything you've spoken on. I'm... Yeah. I mean, you know, I have some gaps in my knowledge and there's certain, you know, health conditions that I don't work with. So I just really am not well versed in them, you know, when somebody comes to me and they're like, I want to lose weight. I'm not a specialist in that. You mm -hmm. know, I, I refer those people to other people, but anything to do with the gut, I'm like there. <laughs> That's right up my alley. That's right up my alley. And, you know, to some degree, autoimmune conditions, I've really thought a lot about that and studied it. And the gut is so important to autoimmune disease. It's a really huge piece of dealing with it and addressing it so did you go into it focusing on the gut microbiome or is that something no. you kind of found along the path no it's i mean it it was it's really like the first thing that we talked about in full body systems and just we discussed how important it is and all the different of course functions that it performs in our body um but it, i think the, the gut focus largely came out of my own health issues because so much of my symptoms were centered around my digestive system and you know, so it's kind of I've just deep dived there because that's what I needed to try and learn more about my condition and what I could do for it. And so I, it's just where I've studied and learned the most. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. And I also, you know, like I mentioned, I, I've struggled with anxiety and depression. My, like when I first started, I thought that was where I wanted to focus was was with anxiety and depression. Um, but then I found that people in that boat often um were you know they weren't really in a good place to make changes like they were just struggling with the anxiety and whatnot it, it just it just wasn't the right niche for me mm -hmm. um but when but nowadays i'm finding that i am now getting more clients who have both who have gut challenges and anxiety and i just feel like i can speak to them really well because it's my story yeah <laughs> too you know it's like anxiety it's like gut stuff compounded by anxiety, compounded by trauma, like all these things. They're all part of my story. So, Which is, I mean, it's almost invaluable having that because you are well-versed and you do have this story and being able to relate to clients coming in. I mean, you can't, you can't beat that. Mm -mm. Like having someone that's been in your shoes and it's yeah. like, okay, I know where you are and I know it can get better. So let's do it. I'm totally. here to help. Totally. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we all have our own unique magic that we are uniquely qualified for because of our own life experience. So we start there. There you go. <laughs> Is that, did you start the YouTube videos then to try to help disseminate some of this information or where did that come into play? 
Um, well, I've been certified as a health coach now. I think I got, I think I got certified in 2016. So that's five years ago in, at the end of June. So yeah, it's been just about five years. And for the first three years, I just had a really hard time finding people to work with. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I needed a way to reach more people. And so the YouTube strategy was just about trying to meet potential clients and, and just get my message out there and, and let people, you know, see me and see, yeah, here's all the stuff I know about and here's things I can help you with. And it's been a really slow build, <laughs> but it's kind of ramping up and I'm, um, in this last six months, I'm, I've, I'm, I've just built a, a, a new online course. And so that's kind of the direction things are going. Oops, sorry. And YouTube is going to be a major part of getting the message out there about that and, and, and finding people to support. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, now that I'm doing it, it's like a wonderful way to share information. And, you know, I mean, every single day I hear from people who, you know, like, Oh, I have this problem. Thank you so much for this video. Or, you know, oh, that's awesome. it's, it's really fun to connect with people because for a couple of years, it was like, I have so much to offer and I just desperately want to help people and I can't find anybody to, to work with. And it's not that, I'm no good. It's just, you know, I mean, I live in a very remote place and yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't live in a town. I can't just sort of go network with people. And so I had to find another way to, <laughs> to get my message out there. That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, you, again, you have the knowledge. It's almost just finding the audience because totally. they're out there. You just got to connect with them. Totally. This course, is it like a, a coaching course or you're just working through what you normally would work with them the on, course, on an online The course media. that I'm working on with people? Yeah. Well, it's called the Calm Digestion Method, and it's an eight-week program just to help people, yeah, do the, uh, you know, address the nervous system, like set up some habits around that. Uh, it's also about doing the proper assessments to decide, like we've been talking about, like what, what is the right diet to start with or where do you start and what are the right things or what are the things that are total rabbit holes that, you you know, like I can't tell you how many people come to me talking about the medical medium and how, you know, oh, I'm, I'm following the medical mediums thing. I don't know if you've heard of the medical mm -hmm. medium. He wrote this book several years ago and basically was like everyone who's got chronic illness has chronic Epstein-Barr virus and everybody should be juicing celery and everybody should be vegan. And, you know, it was one of these everybody should things. And I even tried it, you know, like before I was like knew any better. And I don't know. It's like, anyways, so, you know, I help people narrow, you know, just sort of get into the right neighborhood of choices so that they're not wasting a lot of extra time and they're kind of focusing in the better area or the best area for them. And then, and then I teach people how to make these changes the right way so that, you know, you're just changing one thing at a time and you're um, and how to read what their body's telling them. So it's sort of a comprehensive program to, to talk through all of that. And then it includes coaching that, uh, you know, basically the coaching is included on an ongoing basis beyond the the training itself. So. That's sort of what I'm building. It's oh, that's cool. Still a work in progress. Yeah. Oh man, and it ha it's not out. Yet. Well, I'm I'm running the prototype right now. Okay. I've got I've got a group of seven students that were were working through it, and so you know, we'll see what kind of feedback I get and how oh, I, cool. how I need to upgrade it. <laughs> oh wow, that. that's yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. So you're in the building stages, kind mm -hmm. of putting that out there. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think having more resources like that. Yeah. Again, from from reliable sources is yeah. the key because there's so much information out there that you watch and you're like. Yeah, you should juice for 30 days and like that's all you need. That's going to, it's going to change your life. And you're like, what, 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 
What is happening right now? You shouldn't eat anything but just kale. Okay. Well, we need to we need to figure this out. Yeah. But that's I mean that's the YouTube wormhole that you get sucked in totally. and people just lose it and then you're carnivore for six months or you're vegan for yep. six months. You're like, I don't if nothing's working. Yeah, yeah. And you fall into that that pit of despair. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited for that to come out. I yeah. hope that everything pans out with that. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, we just did an hour and a half. I don't want to keep your son out in, in <laughs> yeah, the car know, waiting any longer. I, was, I just looked at the time and was like, oh, no. I, hopefully he fell asleep or he's playing on his phone to yeah. keep him busy. <laughs> totally. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? Your YouTube videos where, where people can find you? Well, yeah. Um, certainly um, anyone who's interested to, you know, find out to basically apply for the next round of the program can go to my website, which is just confluencenutrition.com forward slash contact. There's um, information there about applying for a seat in the next round of the program. And my YouTube channel is Confluence Nutrition. So it's just youtube.com uh, forward slash Confluence Nutrition. And I have, I think I have over 80 videos over there on all kinds of digestive topics. So, you know, everything from probiotics to diets and histamine diets and low oxalate diets. And um, I have a recent video I put up there that uh, was a live training I gave, you know, I, I think it's titled How to Tame um, Unpredictable Bloating, Constipation, and Diarrhea. And that's a little bit more of an overview of, you know, what I teach. So that's kind of a good one for people to to go check out. To tip their toe in. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah, YouTube is a great place to go connect with me. And yeah, 80 videos. They're going to have yeah, plenty to, have fun. to dive into. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. So. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed sitting down and talking with you. I feel like I have a – I mean, I definitely need to dig in more into nutrition for sure because it's one of those areas where I have, like, a surface level of understanding of, like, what's good and what's bad, but I definitely want to – dive deeper and i think this was yeah. a great was a great introduction i hope people pull something from that yeah i hope so too and thank you so much for having me and, yeah, and reaching pleasure. out i just it was so fun to get that email from you initially like hey you come on my podcast okay <laughs> i know i was so i've been wait i have been waiting forever i've been looking forward to this since we oh, first good. talked i was really excited to nice. sit down and talk with you nice well it's my pleasure to meet you and and hello to your audience and um yeah, I look forward to meeting some of them too, maybe. Fantastic. So, yeah. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Bye.